the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. It is lovely to be with you. Uh, Fantastic just to open God's Word and to learn together whether we are in person in the building, whether we're watching online or catching up uh, online or DVD. It's just wonderful to be able to have the freedom to do this together today. We are going to be continuing our series on the letter of Paul to the Galatians this morning. We're looking at chapter 3. And I'm going to do something a little bit similar to what Johnny did in the first week. I'm going to focus predominantly on the first half of the passage that Hannah has just read for us. And I'm going to call her up to read the second half towards the end, but I won't have very much to say about that. I'm going to leave that for home groups particularly. Perhaps we could just have the, uh, the um, thank you. Yeah, so that's our theme this morning, freedom. Helen and the band have already beautifully led us in thinking about freedom. But I wonder, have you ever come across uh, this book? Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, I think it's probably the best known and the original of those self-help manuals. Um, and Dale Carnegie has sold millions of copies. I think we're up to 30 million copies of this book sold worldwide. And he begins his book by explaining some fundamental techniques in handling people. And this is the very first piece of advice that he gives to folk. He says, if you want to gather honey, don't kick over the beehive. That sounds like pretty good advice to me generally in life. But I have the feeling that somehow the Apostle Paul didn't get hold of his copy of how to win friends and influence people before he wrote Galatians chapter 3. Because did you notice how it started as Hannah read it to us? It didn't seem like (laughs) the best way to try and win friends and influence people. Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? If you received a letter like that, you might not be too happy about it, right? But I think Paul is is just so passionately concerned for the well-being of the Galatians, their spiritual well-being, that he's desperate to get an issue sorted out with them. And so he just speaks straight to them, as we sometimes need to do. Why is he so passionate? What is it that has got Paul so riled and so protective of these believers in Galatia? I think we see it when we just follow on. Uh, a little bit, and read these words. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, we may be, I don't know, maybe 15 or so years after Jesus's death and resurrection. So it's not very long, but um, we're in central Turkey in Galatia. And I don't think any of them probably, who were in those churches, would have actually been in Jerusalem to see the Lord Jesus Christ being crucified. But Paul had come and he preached and he taught them about what had happened to Jesus. And he'd explained to them that when Jesus died on the cross, everything changed. And they had this incredibly vivid mental picture in their minds, thanks to his preaching, that just kind of oriented their life. And Paul says that was so bright in your mind's eye. That was burning so powerfully. But something's happened, hasn't it? He says, who has bewitched you? 
It's as though somebody has cast a spell over these churches and that vivid picture of Christ has just had a veil draped over it. So it's dull and listless and colorless for them. What had gone wrong? Well, Johnny explained this to us, didn't he? If you're here uh, for the first uh, talk in this series. Uh, Johnny explained that what had happened to the gospel in Galatia was this. The people who were there believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the one sent by God, the Savior. They all believed that. But there had been some people who come in and said, yes, he is the Messiah, but you also need to add some other stuff to that. You need to add the whole of the Old Testament law into that. You need to add, if you're male, a bit of a snip-snip issue going on to get circumcised. You need, whatever your gender, to eat certain foods in certain ways at certain times. You need to add all of that stuff in. And Paul was having none of it. He said, no, if you've got Jesus, you don't need any of the other stuff. You have everything that you need in the Lord Jesus Christ. But something has happened to these people in Galatia, and they no longer believe that Jesus is all-sufficient and meets all of their needs. Now, one of the things that I'm really enjoying doing uh, at the moment in my kind of Christian life is, is getting together with some friends um, who are sort of roughly my age and stage. And we just have a desire to go deeper in our prayer lives. So we meet together and uh, we read a book that's about prayer. We pray together, we encourage one another, and we try and see what we can do to build our prayer lives in ways that are just going to be much more fulfilling and satisfying for us. And we hope and pray a blessing for those that we're engaged with. And one of the books that we've been reading recently is this one. It's called Seeing is Believing by a guy called Greg Boyd. And he takes as his central verse in this book a verse that Paul wrote in another of his letters, the, one, the second one he wrote to the church in Corinth in Greece, uh, where he says this, speaking to those who already know Jesus and are following him, he says, We all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, the glory of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul is saying, if we want to grow more like Jesus, we need to have a powerful picture in our heads of the glory of Christ. We need to contemplate steadfastly and with, um, and with real dedication the image of Christ in our lives, as we read about him in the Gospels, as we celebrate him in our songs, let's have that image burning brightly. And as we do, our faith will have that vibrancy and that color that we long for and that depth of relationship that we pray for. In other words, the message is we become what we contemplate. We become what we contemplate. And so my question this morning for every single one of us is this. What are we contemplating? What is it that grabs and captures our imagination? Because if we want to grow more like Jesus, then it needs to be the Lord Jesus Christ. 
anything else will not satisfy us and will not bring us that depth of intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus that we long for. And Paul says, that's what I gave you. I gave you that picture of Jesus to inspire and encourage you. I painted, portrayed Jesus Christ crucified so clearly. And you had it. And it's, got ro- and it's gone wrong. What have they lost? What have they lost as they failed to continue to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ crucified? Well, first of all, they've lost that sense of the fact that Jesus deals with our sin. Um, I don't know how you've come into church this morning, but I'm guessing nearly all of us will have come in bearing a burden of some kind. There's something that we've done or thought or said this week, something that we haven't done or haven't thought or haven't said this week that we wish we had, and we carry a burden for those things. And the cross of Christ deals with those things. This is what Paul tells us in verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's that feeling that we all have, that we're never good enough, that we're never quite what God wants us to be, that we can never live up to God's standards. We all have that feeling, and it's a curse. And Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. He never did anything wrong. He was the only perfect man who had ever lived. But he accepted, just in the manner of his death, to become a curse for us. Because it's written in the book of the Lord, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And when Jesus hung on the cross, he was cursed for being hung on a pole. And he accepted the curse that should have been ours. He absorbed the wrath of God against our wrongdoing. And he dealt with it. And Paul says, you've lost that because you haven't got your eyes fixed on Jesus. You've lost that certainty of salvation in Christ. Second thing that Jesus Christ crucified uh, brings to us, and Saz talks about this in the second of our series on Galatians, is a defining identity. Do you remember that Saz in her talk showed us this picture and uh, quoted this verse at the end of Galatians chapter 2. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Again, it's that power of the imagination to be where Jesus was. I have been crucified with Christ and therefore I no longer live. My ego is no longer central, but Christ lives in me. That's the new identity that we have in Jesus Christ crucified. And the Galatian Christians, they were beginning to lose sight of their new identity. And the third thing that Paul says is so important about the cross of Christ is that it ushers in a whole new age of human history, the age of the Holy Spirit. And as Hannah read those first few verses of Galatians chapter 3, you might have noticed that Paul references the Holy Spirit again and again and again. And he asks the same question twice, in effect, Verse 5, this is the second time. He says, guys, you've experienced what it means to have the Holy Spirit. You've experienced miracles being done among you. How did it happen? Did it happen because you were being obedient to the law 
the, the Old Testament law of Moses? Is that why you experienced the Holy Spirit? Or is it because you believed what was preached about Jesus Christ crucified? And the answer is obvious. It's not because of what you've done or what you're doing. It's because of what Jesus did and your trust and your faith in him. And then Paul does something a little bit odd. He suddenly references this historical figure right from the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and he brings Abraham into it. And Paul says, um, if you are somebody who's just trusting Jesus to be made right with God, actually you're doing what Abraham did centuries and centuries and centuries ago. And he quotes Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. So also Abraham believed God, didn't do anything particularly, just believed God, and it was credited to him by God as righteousness. He was put right with God. Why does Paul bring Abraham into this discussion? It seems like a bit of a strange left field kind of thing to do. But actually, it's, it's very intelligent. Because the problem for the Galatian Christians was that they'd have people come into their, into their midst and said, yeah, Jesus is important. Of course he is. He's the Messiah. Of course he's important. But actually, you need to go back in the Bible history to Moses and you need to add the law of Moses into that. And Paul says, hang on a minute, if we're talking about going back, let's not stop at Moses, let's go right back. Let's go back to Genesis and let's go back to Abraham. So it's part of his ploy of outflanking those who are destabilizing the believers in Galatia. And when we go back to the story of Abraham, if you, if you don't know it at all, God appears to him and just gives him these amazing promises and calls him out of where he was to become a new people. And God says to him, Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, I will make you, Abraham, into a great nation. And ultimately, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Wonderful promise that God makes to Abraham. But Abraham, just a few chapters later, chapter 15, says, hang on, God. Hang on, there's a problem with this promise that you're making to me. Because I'm an old bloke, and I'm married to an old lady who's nearly as old as I am. And humanly speaking, it is not possible for us to have children. And I haven't got any at the moment. So how on earth am I going to be made into a great nation? Ah, I know. It's going to be one of my servants, isn't it? A bloke called Eliezer of Damascus. He's the one you're going to use to make a great nation. And God says to him, uh, no. Uh, no, that's not my plan. I know you're an old bloke. I know you're married to an old lady. I know you can't physically have children in the normal way of things. But this man, Eliezer, will not be your heir. A son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And then God does something absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. He takes Abraham outside the tent and he says to him, Look up at the sky. And count the stars, uh, if you can count them, which obviously you can't. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. The Hebrew word is literally seed. And in the second bit that Hannah will read for us, Paul makes a big play of that fact. It's seed in the singular. So shall your offspring be. I love what God does there. 
he gives, he gives Abraham a picture, doesn't he? Just as Paul had said, he'd painted this wonderful picture of Christ crucified for the Galatians to inspire and encourage them. So God gives Abraham the night sky and he says, that's your picture. That's what I'm calling you to. Be inspired and encouraged by that. And here's the verse that Paul quotes in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord with this outrageous, ridiculous promise. And he, the Lord, credited it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. It put him right with God. Just believing. Just believing. That's all you need to do to become a child of Abraham, an heir of the promises. I don't know where you are this morning with the Lord. Maybe you've been, you've been following him for years already. Maybe you're here and you're curious, as Simon said. These promises can be your promises, your family heirloom in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a lovely old chorus. We won't sing it this morning. Father Abraham had many sons. In Christ, we're included as the children of Abraham. The promises come to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, including, of course, the promise of the Spirit. So that's Paul's argument when it comes to discussing with these people who are saying, yeah, Jesus is fine, but you've got to add in the law of Moses as well. He said, let's go back to Abraham and understand the bigger picture. So where does the law fit into this? Quite a lot of the Bible is the law of Moses. What's it there for? How does it fit in? Uh, Well, for the Judaizers, the argument was you need the law in order to add it on to Jesus to be accepted by God. But Paul says, uh, no, no, Jesus is enough. And I'm going to ask Hannah to come up now and finish reading that chapter, verses 15 to 25, to help us see what Paul's answer is. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it, is, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why, then, was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, We are no longer under a guardian. Thanks very much, Hannah. 
Um, so that is a really intensely packed bit of scripture, isn't it? So do you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to completely shift the responsibility for unpacking it onto you guys um, and onto me as well, because I'm in a home group. And I'm going to say, let's focus on these things in our home groups this week. If you're not in a Belmont home group and you'd like to be, uh, please just have a word uh, afterwards with somebody on the information point, And I'm sure we can find a place for you in a home group. But basically, there's, there's just not enough time this morning to go into this. But I think it's something we could usefully look at in our home groups in the week ahead. See, basically, Paul is saying uh, that the, the, the promises that God makes to Abraham are ultimately, they have priority. They, t- they trump, if you like, the law of Moses. And I think there are perhaps four reasons that he gives for that, but you might think there are others. But I'm not going to go into those now. I'm just going to leave them up there tantalizingly, uh, hopefully to whet your appetite a little bit for home groups in the week to come. And the second thing he does is he says, okay, so if the promises made to Abraham were ultimately more significant, if you like, than the law of Moses or had priority over them, well then, what's the point of the law at all? Is it just a waste of pages in the Old Testament? Uh, And Paul answers that question, I think, in another four ways. But again, I'm going to suggest that we spend some time this week in our home groups unpacking that because it's a big subject and and we don't have time to look at it in detail this morning. Uh, Just the fundamental aspect of it, though, is that Jesus has now come and the law was a time-limited thing. And because Jesus has now come, then the law is useful and interesting and still inspired by God, but it's no longer for the age that we're living in. But I'll leave you to to think more about that uh, in the week ahead. But here's the thing that Paul, I think, wants us to understand. He says, is the law, therefore, sorry, is the, promise, is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Is there an opposition between what God says to Abraham and what God says to Moses? And he says, absolutely not. It's all part of God's word. It's all inspired and breathed by the Holy Spirit. We need to pay attention to all of it. So... What does it mean for us today as Christians? And I think that there is um, a really helpful analogy that is made by this gentleman. He's called Scott McKnight. And uh, Saz mentioned him, actually, in her, in her second talk in the series. And it's slightly bizarrely, you have to go with me on this, it relates to typewriters and computers. Okay? Do you remember typewriters? Some of you are too young to remember typewriters. When I, I can remember being a teenager, and my dad came home one day uh, from work, and he got this strange new thing, which was a primitive computer, because he thought that it would be a good thing for me to learn programming. He knew nothing about my personality, clearly, because I had zero interest in computer programming. But um, I was quite interested in producing things on a, on a keyboard. Um, and this relationship between the manual typewriter and the computers that we know today is quite a helpful analogy between the law and the fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ. This is what Scott McKnight suggests. He says, everything that a typewriter wanted to be when it was a little boy and more is now found in the computer or the laptop. This compares to the law. Everything the law wanted to be 
when it was young, as revealed to Moses, is found now in Christ and in life in the Spirit. So Paul's critique of the Judaizers is that they are typing on manual typewriters after computers are on the desk. So he calls them to put away the manual typewriters. But in putting them away, we don't destroy them. We fulfill them by typing on computers. When we type on our laptops, on our tablets, on our, on our computer PCs or whatever it is, we're doing the same thing that we do on a manual typewriter. But the power behind the one is infinitely greater than the power behind the other. And so, in Christ, we have the fulfillment of the law and the Holy Spirit comes to bring us his power and uh, the excellence of God in all its fullness. And I'm in, I was reminded of what the Lord Jesus Christ himself says about the law uh, in this analogy. Do you remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I, Jesus, have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I've not come to destroy, but to fulfill. The law is good. The law is from God, but it's fulfilled in a new, powerful way through Jesus and the Holy Spirit that he gives us. Some of you to think about in home groups uh, this week anyway. But I don't want to finish with that. I want to finish by just encouraging us once again to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you take nothing away from this morning other than this, please take away this. We're called to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Galatians had done originally. They had that vivid picture. And tragically, it had been taken away from them. And I thought, three days ago, I thought I'd finished my preparation for this sermon. And then the book that I'm reading with my friends at the moment to do with prayer is this one, Dirty Glory by Pete Gregg. And I just read a passage in that that just leapt off the page at me because I thought that's exactly what I want to say this morning. Exactly it. Lord, thank you for giving me that two days before my sermon so that I can share it with everybody. But this is what Pete Gregg says in the book. He says, Satan's not particularly interested in sin. <laughs> I read that verse and like, what? <laughs> Hang on. And then he goes on. His primary objective has never been to tempt you into violating a particular set of rules. His number one aim is simply to divert your attention away from Jesus. He'll use sin to do it for sure. But he's equally able to use busyness or shame or pain, or religion, or Candy Crush Saga, which I believe is some kind of computer game, um, or an obsessive relationship, or a golf handicap, or a pay rise, or an illness to distract you from the Lord. Satan hates the fact that when we fix our eyes on Jesus, broken relationships get fixed.